0: This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on OuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com, OuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining me on the show today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Been uh, a large fan of yours for a long time. Watch Shark Tank, you know, my, my fair share amount for sure. And I'm sort of tempted to, uh, to put on the theme music here in the beginning. But it's a real, <laughs> it's a real honor to have you on the show. And uh, looking forward to asking you some questions, hopefully ones that you haven't uh, covered. I know you're a very public figure. So uh, I think, you know, first of all, people know you, so I don't really need to ask you your story. But I'd like to sort of catch people up uh, and just so they don't have to really get that here. So you grew up, you know, very much hustling, selling garbage bags yeah. for a pair of basketball shoes, uh, went to University of Pittsburgh, transferred to Indiana University, worked at Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh, took off to Dallas, Texas for, quote, fun, sunny, fun, son, money and women, uh, lived yeah. in a three bedroom there, served as a bartender, went and worked for this guy, Michael Himecki, probably made the worst yeah. move and fired you. Uh, and then you started Micro Solutions, sold it for $6 million, retired for a bit, started AudioNet, Broadcast.com, sold it for $6 billion, bought the Mavs, Shark Tank, here you are. So how exactly. did I do for an intro?
1: Perfect, perfect, perfect.
0: Great. So I, I want to go back to the very beginning. I won't spend too much time sort of in the past, but uh, I want to ask you a question I haven't heard you ask, answer directly before, which is, could you talk about something that you learned from your mother and something that you learned from your father, maybe at a very young age?
1: I think I learned from my dad to be nice and to respect people and to give everybody a chance um, and just, you know, be respectful and nice. Really. I mean, he, he got along with everybody and anybody, nobody disliked my father. Um, I learned from my mom to be inquisitive and um, learn and challenge things and not take things for granted
0: and what are your kids going to say if i ask them that question in, in you know 20 years in 20 years i don't know cuz my kids are 11,
1: 14 and 17 so if you ask them now they'd say he's just a dad that's a pain in the ass and tells <laughs> stupid dad jokes
0: and, and a good tiktok guest as well right
1: yeah sometimes not always cuz my daughter gets mad at me that i can't get the the dances down fast enough
0: that's funny. Well, I've, uh, my, my girlfriend's shown me a few of them. And it looks like you're doing a pretty good job from my perspective, certainly better than I would expect <laughs> not from, to do myself.
1: Yeah, not from a 17 year old daughter's perspective. It's a different
0: beast. Yeah, no, very high standards there. I understand. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you a bit about your current uh, investment outlook. Obviously, sure. you've become super well known for, uh, you know, being a shark on Shark Tank. From my perspective, actually, maybe before we get to your investment approach, that's sort of not actually the first sort of place I I would put you in terms of your skill set. So you're obviously this tremendously successful entrepreneur, and just a general hustler, very persistent, and sort of getting everything done and and just building companies, whatever it takes. That's sort of the first thing I think of like an entrepreneur. Secondarily, you made a ton of money trading in the public market. So I think of that sort of second, and then maybe third as like a VC investor. Is that fair? And sort of how do you think about your skills aligned with these different buckets?
1: Yeah, really, I mean, my skill is take tying tech and business together and being able to understand both and kind of project forward where things are going. Um, and you know, we started when, when I had micro solutions, the first company, after I got fired, we were one of the first three companies in the country to, to do systems integration for local area networks. Um, I taught myself the program and was writing distributed database applications on Novell networks and, you know, wans and and x25 and stuff like that until we sold it and you know and so that gave me a foundation in technology and and software and my background was always in business and then you know the next company was the first streaming company and then after that um the first high definition company and then first vertically integrated entertainment company to do day and date so you know i've always tried to just stay you know one step ahead by, you know, Steve Jobs once famously said everything's a remix by just remixing all the things that I know to, to try to get an edge. And then that also applies to where my investing focuses. You know, whether it's um, private companies and putting aside Shark Tank stuff, but you know, whether it's public companies or private companies, whatever it may be, you know, that's kind of the skill set I tried to bring to the table.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because people see Shark Tank. Obviously, it's super visible and public, but Uh, my understanding is that those aren't really the investments that you're sort of most bullish on. Uh, those are sort of, you know, Shark Tank is an outlet for you to sort of inspire the kids. Is that right? Correct.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it sends the message to everybody that you can't, you can be an entrepreneur no matter your circumstances and that the American dream can be alive and well.
0: Right. So when you think about these sort of, you know, you had the first X, the first Y, what do you envision potentially being next?
1: You know, it's interesting because that gets us to crypto because blockchain and in particular smart contracts associated with them and decentralized governance, I think, are game changers. Um, We can talk about specifics like DeFi and and how they disintermediate traditional banking by making everybody a banker. But really, I think, you know, decentralized governance and the ability, you know, to handle business differently is the ultimate game changer And, and basic applications like you know, one I'm starting, starting to see a lot more of is with insurance. Um, but, using smart contracts in ways that it's never insurance has never been done before. So the the simplest example is, you know, last month we had some crazy weather in Dallas where it went, you know, below zero and we got multiple inches of snow and people couldn't come to a Mavs game. We had just started having fans and we couldn't get people there and it would have been very easy for someone to create a smart contract that has an Oracle from the national weather service and set, you know, a, a rate, um, so that I could just buy one online or buy one online, buy one um, through a DAP that said, if the weather goes below zero degrees Fahrenheit, and there's greater than two inches of participa- um, precipitation, because obviously if it's zero degrees, it's going to be snow, then I pay you X and you pay me Y. And that's all done by a smart contract that, that um, just pulls the, um, the Oracle continuously that's the kind of decentralized application that is going to have a significant impact another example is with health insurance we've all been through the hassle at some point um, of trying to either get pre-authorization for a claim or getting a claim approved and in a centralized insurance company health insurance company um the, the natural response is for them to do everything possible not to pay the claim or to not allow you to use the treatments that you want to lo- to use. In a decentralized environment, you know, let's just say it's um, an optimistic roll-up type approach um, pre-Ethernet 2.0. And you have a sequencer that's sending out all these claims and you have the validators that um, have the opportunity to look for fraud or to verify the, the claims you know, and maybe I didn't get that exactly right, but approximately, um, then all of a sudden the game of health insurance and the business of health insurance is turned upside down because it becomes decentralized. And even though it's trustless, it's much more trusted. And I think that's gonna have a significant impact on how we do business. Now, is that three years? No, five years, no, maybe 10 years, maybe longer. You know, we started the streaming industry in 1995 and here we are 26 years later. And, you know, people are still watching traditional television. And I would have told you there's no way that people would be doing that when we started Audionet and Broadcast.com.
0: Right. So you, you touched on sort of weather dependent ticketing and these health insurance applications. There's obviously a lot that can be done with crypto. But right now, to your point, it's very nascent. There's basically Bitcoin, which people have been excited about for years. Ethereum, which is, you know, similar and growing. Uh, I know you're very bullish on Ethereum and NFTs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand your profile or your portfolio rather is somewhere along the lines of like 60, 30, 10. I'm curious, just fundamentally, you know, Bitcoin to Ethereum in terms of market cap, you're talking about, I think, about a five to one right now. Uh, right. And you're, so you're actually much more heavily weighted towards Ethereum. I understand you think it's a little bit better as like a currency. Can you just sort of explain, you know, pros sure. and cons of each?
1: So, so right now, when you, so when you look at bitcoin it's a store of value it's digital gold there aren't really a lot of other applications other than some some value transfer or the equivalent of a fiat transfer right so there's some countries where they don't trust the trust fiat and they just don't trust their their currency. And so Bitcoin is what they trust and it's being used there. But, you know, the cost to just, you know, the average cost for a a Bitcoin um, transaction is like $17. I think I saw yesterday, which, you know, doesn't seem like a lot if you're transferring millions of dollars, but if you're transferring tens of dollars, that's a lot of money. So there's, there's a limit in the number of, you know, um, transfer applications for Bitcoin and while there are some it's still very limited so bitcoin has kind of established itself as a store of value some people think it's a hedge to fiat i don't i just think it's an alternative to gold and that's fine that's a great application and if gold's a 10 trillion dollar market cap i think gold is pretty much useless other than industrial applications and some jewelry so i think you know the whole gold as a religion is evolving over to Bitcoin as a religion, um, for younger generations. And over time, as they age, that'll become more and more prevalent. So, you know, I have a larger allocation to Bitcoin cause it's gone up so fast. Whereas on ethernet or ethernet Ethereum, um, that it's completely different. You know, with Ethereum, you start with applications, um, and the, the disruption that those applications, particularly smart contracts, can cause. Now, you know, when you talk about Ethereum, you have to talk about, you know, Ethereum 2.0 and if and when transition happens. And, you know, I think it will, but who knows when. And then you talk about layer two, three, four, and the applications. And, you know, everybody points to Ethereum and its shortcomings. But over time, technology tends to work out those shortcomings. And so I think Ethereum applications are going to continue to explode you know we've seen DEXs we've seen um, a variety of applications via dApps I talked about some of the you know we talked about NFTs all these things that are driven by smart contracts are just going to expand and we really you know the NFT market and the DeFi market those are really just proof of concepts for for business applications for smart contracts and we haven't really even seen just even a glimmer Um, we, we haven't had a smart contract, a business smart contract summer yet where people realize that, um, they can really change how, how we do business. I gave you the insurance application, um, example, there's thousands more.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably few people, if anyone in the world who sort of experienced the rise of the internet and was very much, you know, involved in the rise of the internet and now is so bullish vocally on, uh, on crypto. And so I'm sort of curious to hear, there's an obvious analogy between where crypto is now and where the internet was in maybe the late 90s or something like that. Where do you think we are, uh, you know, comparable to the internet? And like the internet, you know, it would have been hard to predict in like the 90s that, you know, an online bookstore and a search engine and, you know, in 2000s, a Harvard Facebook would become like the big three companies. Um, How do you sort of think about Bitcoin, I think, is like obvious, right? It's digital gold. It's very easy to wrap your head around. Even Ethereum quickly becomes a little harder to sort of fathom in in terms of like what it could be. And then you talk about like the third and fourth players that could come into play or whatever it might be. Uh, How do you think about that sort of analogy?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, agree on Bitcoin and, you know, it's really 1995. It it feels the exact same way where, you know, I remember sitting there talking to my friend and and then partner Todd Wagner about how we can listen to sports over this new thing called the internet and thinking to myself, okay, I'm just going to go set up a server in my bedroom and see what I can make happen. And that effectively was, you know the start of the the streaming industry, you know, not just me, there were obviously others, but that's how it got started. And back then it was very complicated. And, you know, when we had Audionet up and running, our our biggest um, usage rates were during the day when people would listen to, you know, the Chicago Cubs games or listen to music. We had hundreds of online radio stations. We had on-demand CDs, um, you know, albums. Um, We had police scanners that were playing and, and people were stuck in their office and it was their only media device on their desk, their PC. But to be able to get a stream stream back then, you had to have access to either broadband or a dial-up modem, and then you had to have an ISP account. Then you had to have TCP on top of that ISP account in order to connect to the ISP. Then you had to have a media player in order to be able to go to a website like AudioNet, click on a batch file that then fed you a link to the media player, and you had to make all those pieces work, and a lot of times they didn't. Um, But – you know if if you were working behind the scenes like we were it was pretty straightforward particularly with my background to see that that was going to change it was similar when we started hdnet which was the first all high definition network and people would say wait, you know, those TVs, those those plasma TVs that are on the wall that look really cool, cost $25,000. And I was like, yeah, but you don't understand that's going to follow the same tech, the typical technology price performance curve. And it's all going to change. And the point being that these complications you're referring to with Ethereum that make it a little bit hard to understand. That's only because we're in the first innings of applying smart contracts to business applications. Um, and as we as the technology continues to advance that's all going to get simplified and all of a sudden we'll look at it like we do streaming today where you don't even think about a complication you just think okay you know do i have netflix or not you know the, you don't think about what the protocols are behind the scenes yet that's exactly what we're talking about with ethereum you know is it layer 1 layer 2 i mean you know, back in the day, we used to talk about the different forms of streaming. There's HTTP streaming because it got through a firewall. There's RTP streaming there, you know, there's um, multicast, whatever. And and so there were all the, you talked about solutions and applications in terms of the, the technical details. And that complicated it for most people. But everybody in the business knew you had to massage those out so that everyday users could use it. And it's the same now, you know, the. The insurance applications I gave you, you know, think about textbooks and NFTs right now, you know, the incumbent publishers that are publishing college and high school textbooks, um, you know, they try to to do everything possible, not to be disintermediated by secondary sales. And there's no way for them to participate in the resale market unless they own those companies. And so now you make a, a textbook, an NFT, and but instead of using you know an NFT like we have right now, where you just mint it and it's a file and you unlock it and you download it, the, you know there'll be a better version to download um, and extract from it that makes it a more usable textbook. And then when you go to resell it, you know, it, the original publisher now is able to take advantage of royalties on those resales, et cetera, et cetera. So there'll be so many applications that we come up with that over time, hide the complications behind it, that in five years, we won't even reference a smart contract. We won't even reference minting, you know, it'll just be, Oh, you know, um, did you get the textbook? Yeah, I got it. Did you sell the textbook? Yeah, I sold it. Um, where do you buy and sell your textbooks? You know, this marketplace or that marketplace, it'll all be simplified. So that's one of the reasons I'm really bullish on Ethereum and still think it's underpriced.
0: Yeah. I I know you like the royalties a lot and we can get Mm -hmm. into talking a bit more about NFTs. You've gone at it at length on, uh, on bankless and and unchained two podcasts that I listened to in preparing. So I encourage people to go there if, if they want to hear more on the topic specifically, but I want to go back to sort of the 1995 comparison. Sure. Um, if we're in 1995, there's a, uh, you know, there's still a lot of room left to run in the near term, but there's also a bubble coming. And uh, the way Bitcoin and Ethereum, or Bitcoin at least, has operated uh, you know, thus far, it's, it's gone up and down. In hype cycles, it goes up like 20x, it goes down like 80%, sure. 70%. Uh, a lot of people think we're sort of in, in the early stages of the current bull run and that it might uh, you know, dip again. People say, oh, there's more institutional investors, it won't be 70 80% this time, sort of TBD whether that happens or not, but how do you think about, you know, so, so for example, I'm, you know, I'm 26, um, I've got most of my money in crypto, not because I sort of allocated it that way, but because it's all gone up so much. Uh, and you know, like you, most of my money is, is in Bitcoin secondarily in Ethereum and and very little in anything else. Um, if you're me, do you think about sort of trying to play the hype cycles a little bit? No, no, no.
1: Yeah. You just hold. Now what's different and why the collapse won't be as bad if, and when it comes is because there's hedging vehicles that weren't really available in 2017. And so like the stock market, I'm hedged my, my biggest positions. I have a tail hedge on them. So in the event that the market crater is more than 15 or 20%, um, I've got all these combinations of puts and calls that protect me and actually help me make some money. And you can do pretty much the same thing with Bitcoin and Ethereum right now. And so whales, you know, in particular, anybody of any size um, can start to educate themselves on how to use um, like a or, or any of the other comparable sites where there are, you um, perpetuals and other opportunities to, to hedge what you've got. So that's one element. And the second element is, I think, you know, it's very hard to time and whether it's the stock market, I, I t- kind of take the Warren Buffett approach. Then I think um, Bitcoin and Ethereum are comparable to his view on the stock market. I don't know where Bitcoin and Ethereum are going to be in one year, but I'm pretty confident they're going to be way up in five. And, you know, a lot of things can change. Applications can change. Um, something else could become a store of value. But so there's risk. It's not risk free. But I don't. I don't think we're in the same position as we were, um, you know, even a year ago, or two years ago, or four years ago. And you know, with the DeFi summer, you know, it's not. It's not a surprise that a lot of the prices for where the prices for ethereum and bitcoin went up because you created a lot of different ways to play with those um, currencies or those assets and so i think that's a significant change and in terms of comparing it to 1995 it's it's more i could it's similar in that there was a lot of money rushing in to fund really comp- companies that really didn't have a foundation or really didn't have a business. Anybody that had a URL could go public. Anybody that had a URL could get funding because to investors at the time, it seemed very complicated. And when it's complicated, anybody can basically bullshit an investor and get their money um, and it works until it doesn't. You saw the same thing in 2011, 2012 with you know tons of new social medias and also apps. You know, everybody was going to create an app that was going to have 10 million downloads and made a fortune, and a ton of of money rushed in, valuation skyrocketed, and 99% of them collapsed. You're seeing the same thing now with DeFi and um, new blockchains and dApps, where because it's complicated to a lot of investors, and there's so many things happening simultaneously, that it's really difficult to know what's good and what's bullshit for a lot of people. And, and so that's where you'll get the collapse. It's not necessarily that blockchain Ethereum will collapse. It's that not all these layer two solutions are going to work yet. They've attracted a lot of money. Not all these competitive blockchains are going to work yet. They've attracted a lot of money. And the second part of it that's very different is in, you know, the early days of the internet, you saw, like with broadcast.com once we went public we used our stock to to buy a lot of other companies um and we invested in a few um but here all these blockchains competitive blockchains are using their their tokens to invest in everything they're they're doing the most spray and pray so you're seeing these you know you're seeing um You know, I'm not even to go in and name names, but you're seeing every competitive blockchain, you know, just putting money into anything that uses their blockchain. Because just like in 1995, every website needed traffic. And that was the currency. If you didn't have traffic and it was even they even use bullshit um, um, parameters like hits, you know, and if you remember, a hit is just a server serving one file didn't matter if it was a graphic file a text file whatever it was it was just i hit was one file and so websites would put 30 40 50 100 little baby gif files and every visit to a page was 100 hits and then they'd say they had tens of millions of hits total nonsense you know and then with the streaming industry and we went to this but others would say, you know every open file every listen didn't matter if they listen for a millisecond and their 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 connection cut off every listen was currency right that was the benchmark that everybody used and you're starting to see that now with crypto tps that's the benchmark you know we've got 9000 000, 10000 000, 34000 000 tps and and ethereum's you know can't deal with that and then you've got layer 2 saying no we you know we take you know ethereum to 9 4000 or 9000 tps using this this and this and 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 so you're you're seeing all these funky metrics that are basically used to convince people who don't understand what's going on to invest. And that always leads to a collapse in companies that don't deserve to survive. And like the Internet days, you know, eBay and Amazon and others survived and thrived. And you'll see the same thing here. The hard part is picking the winners, but in the postmortem, when we look back in ten years, it'll be like I can't believe you know everybody fell for it, and eighty-eight percent of the companies, you know, level one, layer ones, layer twos, layer threes, layer fours, whatever, collapsed.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're obviously sort of the, the master of the hedge. You uh, when you sold your company to Yahoo for billions of dollars you would have lost a lot of it had you just held the Yahoo stock and you went and hedged that right. and responsible for a lot of your fortune. How exactly did you go about or have you gone about hedging Bitcoin and Ethereum? Because what I'm concerned about is not so much the hype cycles, which I could sort of swallow and accept, but um, more so the potential, like maybe it's 1% or maybe it's only you know 0.5% or, or whatever it is, maybe it's 10% of sort of an existential risk event where you know maybe a big government just goes, you know, guns up and just totally attacks one of these things and buys it all up or whatever it is and ruins it. Uh, and, and who knows what the situation is, 51% attack or, or whatever it is. But that's sort of a situation where maybe it sets crypto back five or 10 years. And being where I am in life, you know, it's sort of tempting to take a little bit of money off the table. So on the first hand, how do you think about the hedge, you know, more specifically? And then second of all, um, if you're not investing in crypto and presumably a good amount of your, you know, net worth is not in crypto, where else are you investing these days? Just given the craziness sure. of the world with COVID and uh, the stock market being all time highs and everything like that. So a couple things there, you have to look at your, your personal
1: situation first. And so when I had, I was like, I'm worth, you know, I got to be next to my name. How much money do I need? And so I don't need to be greedy. I just need to, to be, um, Preserved. I just need to be happy. Yeah. I need to be happy. Right. You know, I can't take this for granted. And so, Excuse me, I was like, okay, I'm gonna take whatever it takes to still keep a B next to my name. And anything above that, I'm happy to, to lose in a hedge. And you've got to look at that in your personal circumstances as well. You know, at 26, you've got a long time, but you never know, you know, how long things can take. Um, and so you don't want to be, you know, you know, I think it was from 1966 to 1982, the SP stayed or the Dow rather stayed under a thousand. So it basically didn't move. Um, and and so you know, you don't want to go from 26 to 42 and and not have changed your your net worth. And so you've got to decide right now and, and others in your circumstances, everybody's got to decide, OK, you know, what do I need? You know, what what how much is is enough for now? And can I take above that amount and use it to hedge myself and for how long? And that allows you to sleep better at night, allows you to pay your bills, and it also allows you to share in the upside in case you're wrong.
0: Yeah. I, I'm of, go, go ahead. ahead. You got
1: Okay. I was, I, and then in terms of where I'm at now, you know, I've got a hedge on my, my public market stocks. Um, and I put those on in February because again, it's really frothy. And I'm like, look, I've had a great year. Um, great, you know, pandemic run how much, you know, don't get greedy Mark. Cause it's really easy. You know, in a bull market, everybody thinks they're a genius. Everybody thinks it's, you know, they figured it out and they're the smart ones, not realizing that it's the interest rates that are driving and inflating everything. And so you, you, you've got to be a little bit self-aware and realize you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm not as smart as I think I am sometimes. And so, you know, I've hedged, um, I've cut down to just a few positions. I've sold almost everything. Um, but I've kept my biggest long-term positions and the reason I keep my positions, What I look for in public companies is who are the best in the world at artificial intelligence, because AI is just as disruptive and a lot of respects more disruptive than, than crypto. And the companies that are great at it are the ones that continue to outperform. You know, you mentioned some, if you look at Facebook and Google and Microsoft and, um, Netflix, you know, and and just go down the list. These are Apple. These are all companies that are really, really, really good at artificial intelligence and have been doing it for years. And that's why they always outperform. You don't necessarily see it in their products. It's not like you look at an iPhone and say, wow, that was obviously designed by AI, but AI can influence all the back-office cost and operations and make them much more efficient. Um, their supply chain, their, their shipping, their logistics, all these things benefit from AI and manufacturing, um, reducing manufacturing defects. And so that's what I look at. And, and so, and I've said this publicly before, my biggest positions are Netflix and Amazon and have been for years, and I don't imagine ever selling them.
0: Yeah, Amazon is uh, is my largest public holding as well, and, and I, I'm sure it's about you know .001 percent of yours or something like that. But uh, I hope for uh, your I'm, sake
1: it's a lot more.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm extremely <laughs> bullish on the company because uh, it just seems like I mean it's it's insane with COVID. Just looking at myself personally, you know, now I used to basically order everything off Amazon. Now I get weekly groceries from Amazon, yeah. and that just you know doubles yeah. and triples my weekly spend. You know, if not more than that, and I can't imagine that's not the case for a lot of people. Plus the oh yeah, AWS, and you can start
1: thinking yourself. You start thinking yourself. I wish Amazon did this, this, and this. Right? If only I can get this, this, and this on Amazon, and then you start. Then you think to yourself as a shareholder. well, they probably realize that realize that too, and they're going to get there. And, yeah, exactly. and it, if they and if they break them up for antitrust reasons, that typically helps the stocks. So then there's one, two, or three companies whose stocks go up, and you know you've gotten those um, your shares of those companies and and the breakup as well. And so, you know. Again, these are companies that are great at AI, and there's a lot of have-not companies. AI is hard, and that's the biggest challenge for small companies and also the biggest opportunity for decentralization and um and smart contracts for small companies. Because on one hand, AI is very difficult, very valuable, but very difficult for small companies. Um, there's just a lot of BS. There's a lot of BS deals out there where people are saying, we know AI, and they hired one person from this Ivy League school. And you know that's that's their AI department. And, and for better or worse, AI is not that easy. But on the flip side, being small, crypto can really benef- benefit the smaller companies more because it's easier to optimize your product to your customers and implement decentralization. If that's the way to go into your customer base, than it is for a big company. So if someone wanted to compete with DocuSign, if somebody wanted to compete with an insurance company, you can start small on a decentralized basis using smart contracts and other, um, extensions of blockchain and really have a significant impact, you know, um, Once we start doing payroll, you know, there's some payroll, like BitPay does payroll globally and does some payroll things, but nobody's really, um, doing. And when I say payroll, not paying people in crypto, you know, where you buy crypto and then send it to their wallet. That's kind of, that's kind of stupid actually because of the transaction fees. But if you've got all your employees and everything, and you're starting to increase the amount of business that you do, um, in crypto and native crypto um, and get your vendors there. And so you start getting all the benefits of the simplicity of exchanging value um, and the, redo, removing the friction. Then all of a sudden there's game changers there.
0: Right, yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective. And I, I loved your approach to the uh, the investment question earlier that it's a personal thing. That's what I always tell people who, you know, Uh, Believe it or not, people ask me the questions as well sometimes, and uh, I always say it's totally personal and up to your risk tolerance and and things like this. Um, I want to move off of crypto a little bit. I have a feeling you're going to be on a lot of crypto podcasts for the next (laughs) few years, if not decade. Uh, And I want to talk about some, uh, you know, some other things, sort of some principles that you have. Uh, But before we do that, even I want to talk about. uh, There's a list, and I don't know if you've shared it anywhere, but there's a list. Of all the different jobs you would love to do that you wrote when I think you were in your 20s. Uh could yeah. you share what that list is about? What's oh, on the list?
1: I don't remember all of them. I honestly don't. Whatever the new technology, you know, I remember one of them was cable television, because that was relatively new back then. Um, another was telecommunications, because that was relatively new back then, but I don't even remember all the rest of them.
0: Was there, I'm curious, was there actor on the list? Was that one of the professions you were thinking about? Oh no, acting I did just for the fun of it
1: yeah, I would have loved to have been able to be an actor. Um, but even to this day, I love doing acting. Um, because business, you know, i I know how to control and I know how to have an impact and I know what I need to do. Um, and I'm good at it for the most part with acting, you got to let go of everything. And it's completely different. If, if being a business person is being a type a, um, being an actor is everything else. Um, and so that's why I like it. And it's probably the hardest thing for me to do because you just have to let everything go. So when you see me do all those cameos and, you know, if you want to see my great acting skills, you can watch Billions or Sharknado 3 or Entourage Season 7 <laughs> and see, you know, some of my great acting.
0: Right. So so I want to go in on Sharknado 3. You brought it up, not me. You played the uh-huh. president. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't see it, but I found it in research. I, I, I haven't fortunately, uh, you know, unfortunately i haven't seen all of the shark yet but um but you played the president i want to know when that's going to be real life uh i know you've spoken never about never why happened. you have not run in the past never. you sort of you ran the polls never. you're saying
1: yeah never going to happen
0: Never when, gonna happen. when it
1: was No, not going to happen when it was Donald Trump and there, you know, and I'm not a fan of his, as I've said publicly many times, then it was something to talk about because I was, I'm independent. I'm not with either party, you know, I'm not politically correct, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought I could, you know, that maybe there would have been some value, but yeah, it didn't happen and it's not going to happen.
0: All right. Well, we can shut that down easily then, uh, going back to your twenties. Um, if you were in your twenties today, sort of, you know, dirt poor, no relationships, but you sort of have the the experience and all the knowledge and wisdom that you have today, what do you think you'd be doing? Would you be starting a crypto company, getting into AI? What would you be involved with if you wanted to sort uh, of become a billionaire? Be,
1: probably be AI first and foremost and learning everything there is to learn about that. And then looking at um, smart contracts and trying to figure out how to apply AI to um Apple business applications that leverage smart contracts. And I know a lot of that sounds corny because, Hey, let's just pick all the hot buttons right now. But if you start to try to understand how to optimize things with artificial intelligence and then how to apply smart contracts so that you can do them better, you know, I'll use my um, insurance application again, you know, so for instance, I can use AI to try to discern what is a good price to pay for insurance against extreme weather circumstances for the Dallas Mavericks and how much I should I should pay or invest and, and how much I should expect back. Um, and that's, that would be one type of application. You can do the same thing with healthcare. You know, how how can I find a way to implement smart contracts and using AI pick the right spots and, and understand the right pricing that's involved um, by developing models that determine, you know, um, the optimal pricing um, points for different procedures, and and so you know you you can start to think of thousands of applications where you can combine the two, and that's probably what I would do.
0: Yeah, so so one thing I think is is kind of interesting, going back to maybe your earlier years a little bit, is that uh, basically the realization that like everyone you know their heroes have heroes too. Uh, you're certainly a hero to a lot of people. Someone I personally have looked up to. Uh, who were your sort of, you know, role models back then, or even now sort of people who have inspired you along the way that you've learned things from and look up to.
1: I always looked up to Ted Turner because he didn't give a fuck. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He he just went out and had fun and he busted his ass and overcame difficult circumstances. um, Was a salesperson at heart, heart, um, but really didn't take no for an answer. Didn't, um, didn't think what other people thought of him and just, Look, the, looked the, at the way things were always being done and said, OK, if they're always being done this way, there's got to be a better way. And he would find it. So I looked up to him. I looked up to Warren Buffett because he just always comes up with these words of wisdom because he's always learning. You know, he's in his mid 90s and he never stops reading, never stops learning. And to me, that's the that's the ultimate telltale sign. You know, there's some people that have had a lot of success and they just keep on renewing and reviewing that success with people. And there's others who just keep on moving the, the bar forward and, and learning new things and finding new ways to have an impact. And I, I look, I like Elon for that reason as well. You know, he always comes up with these things and you think, damn, that's a good idea. Why didn't somebody else think of that? Or why didn't I think of that? And, and so those are kind of the, the people that I have and, and do look up to.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing group of people. You mentioned with Warren Buffett sort of admiring the fact that he's constantly learning. He's in his 90s and he's still learning. You obviously are very much the same. You know, picking up crypto, NFTs, everything to do with Ethereum, artificial intelligence, VR, all of this stuff. Uh, when you have no, you know, you're you're a billionaire. Obviously, you have no reason to need to learn these things. It's just curiosity and sort of relentless drive. I imagine. Uh, how do you yeah, think I'm about-
1: comp- I'm just competitive. I'm competitive, right? You know, there's Jake at 26 who's trying to kick my ass and know more about this shit than I do. And I'm not going to let that happen, Jake.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to go toe to toe with you on crypto today, certainly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe I'll polish. I, I think actually something very useful that I've sort of picked up from, from reading, uh, you know, your blogs and hearing you talk and, and things like this is uh, basically the idea that you have to learn how to learn before you really yeah. focus on what to learn. And yep. uh, you did this, you know, you may be still refining your sort of learning how to learn, but certainly over time, you spend less time learning how and more time learning what with sort of the how that you've developed. And so it but seems But even to that me... changes. But right. it's
1: interesting because that changes because, you know, and I'm learning that from my kids, my, my youngest at 11, like I said, and, you know, I was always read it in a book, read it, read it on a website, just read, right? Read everything and anything. And they're all about video. You know, when the GameStop stuff started happening, my 11 year old would come in and want to talk to me about it and ask about, should he buy GameStop or AMC stock? And he'd never traded stocks or had an interest. I'm like, what sparked this interest? And he was like, oh, I saw all this on TikTok. There's all kinds of people talking about it on TikTok. And then he, you know, from there he wanted to get, you know, learn more about crypto mining because, you know, he, I got him a, a PC for for Christmas this past summer or the, um, this past winter. And um, he wanted to see if while he's at school, he could teach it to mine so he can make more, make some money um, to buy more stuff for his PC. And rather than reading about it, like I did, he watched videos on it. And so, you know, it really, it's teaching me that there's different ways for different people to learn. And that also has implications for the Mavericks, right? Because what we would have done to work with a kid coming into the Mavericks organization five, six, seven years ago is now different for a 19 or 20 year old coming into the organization because you're not going to give them something to read. You're going to give them something to watch.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. First of all, great name for your kid, Jake. You know, love that, obviously. Um, But secondarily, uh, you talk about sort of this change in the uh, mode of learning or the medium, rather. Uh, And I've sort of thought about this. I actually never, growing up, you might cringe to hear this, but I never really liked reading, I think, just because I had so much to read for school. And I sort of didn't want to do that. Uh, And I sort of developed this, you know, I've since started reading a lot more, read your book. You know, in the last twenty four hours, and, and re, you know read. All,
1: all eighty pages of it, right? How to win at the sport of business.
0: Yeah, you, you weren't supposed to tell people that. They're supposed to be impressed when I said I read it all in the last twenty four <laughs> hours and everything. But uh, but yeah, eighty. Short for a reason. Yeah, eighty pages of gold. Um. Anyway, I uh, I sort of thought that you know, what if basically the the consensus and you know common advice, common wisdom is that reading is like the best thing you can do. Uh, because you look at everyone who's really successful, you look at you, you look at Buffett, all of these different people, Elon, um, they're you know super successful and they were just total bookworms. Uh, but what I sort of wondered is, you know, what if in 20 years, to your point, all of the most successful people in the world actually didn't read books? What if they just absolutely binged sort of high-value videos? And uh, I've sort of thought about how this shift that you sort of hinted at has taken place. Do you think that reading? Do you think there's a legitimate argument that reading is not sort of the most productive use of time if you want to learn something anymore?
1: No, not necessarily. Um, everybody's just going to learn differently. I think the point is you everybody you've got to accept how people learn because there, there's there's still nuanced things that you can do in words that you can't do in video. You know, there's 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 distractions in video that you don't have with words. Um, the visuals, obviously, um, and there's different types of stories that you can tell. So if you're, you know, if you look at my book, how to win at the sport of business, um, you can, I can tell the story where I don't have to worry about what I look like, you know, cause if someone's just talking to you in a video and I'm just reading what's in my blog post or telling that story and reliving it, then it, it may not seem like an effective or well thought out video and you, it may be dismissed. But if it's a, um, if it's a, a book, or an article or a blog, then the expectation is different, and you know the presentation is different. So there, there's there's pluses and minuses to each one.
0: Right. So so one thing you you wrote about uh, was basically that everyone tells you you know you're so lucky that you you know were really into technology and then that took off and computers and software and things like this. Uh, but it, it seemed to me that you were sort of suggesting that there's there's an aspect of you can make your own luck. And of course, there's still, there's always gonna be some aspect of of like blind luck, but there's things that you can actually do to increase your chances of getting lucky. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about luck and sort of the role it's played and how you've sort of attracted it over the course of your life? Yeah, I
1: don't know if I attracted it. I I always tell my kids now that if if I do another book, it's gonna be named Life is Half Random. And there's certain things you can't control. That's just the randomness of life. You know, if you started a business on March 10th, and then the pandemic hits on March 11th, or we close things down on March 11th, that's just, that's luck. There's nothing you could do to, you can do to have prevented that or control it, um, and bad luck in this case. And I didn't have any control that the internet stock market was going to blow up at the right time. Um, and that was good luck for me. But you can be prepared by being good at something. I think where people lose track, you know, success means can mean anything to any, you know, to anybody, right. You know, when I was broke, I thought I was successful, you know, sleeping on the floor. Cause I, I was having fun every day. I was enjoying my life and I didn't know how things would turn out, but I knew I was going to keep on trying to make things happen. Um, and I thought I was successful. And so you have to define your own version of success, but once you figure that out, then if you can find something that you're good at, then it's just a matter of trying to be great at it. And that, you know, and because being great is, is a moving target, then it really takes continuous, continuous effort to try to be great at whatever it is you're good at. I mean, if you look at the NBA and basketball, you know, we, we all look for the next Shaquille O'Neal for the longest time, but now Shaquille O'Neal would still be a star, but it'd be difficult for him to dominate the game the way he did before, because all of the three point shooting. And so businesses evolve, technologies evolve. And so while your, your quest to be great at whatever it is, um, it's good. You know, you can be successful at, at reaching a certain level, but you've got to continue that quest. And like you mentioned with me, always trying to learn more, you know, that's just the way I look at it. So I guess, you know, to summarize, find something you're good at and try to be great at it. And when you're great at something, there's always a way to monetize it.
0: Yeah, I like that, and I like the. Uh, it brings to mind for me, like the Steve Jobs quote, basically like you have to find what you love, otherwise you'll never be great, and uh, yep. you have to you have to find that first, and then you have to be great. And so, uh, and,
1: and you know what? It, but it's not like okay, this is my passion. Follow my passion, because you're not always going to be great at your passion. You know, you've got to find something that you can be great at, and you'll just look to see where you spend your time. You know, look on your calendar. Where am I spending all my time? Because that's typically what you know, where you find yourself spending your time is what the thing that you want to be great at. And once you get to be great, not only can you monetize it, but no one typically people don't quit things that they're great at.
0: Yeah, I like how you talk about sort of having this edge. And I think people, you know, you can only really have the edge in something that you just consistently find yourself doing. It doesn't feel like this burdensome work. It's, it's just something that you naturally are doing all of the time. And that's sort of an opportunity to be great at something. And, you know, I'm never going to be in the NBA, just because I like basketball, but there's a, it's at least, you know, partly useful, I think, to think about it that way. Um, I I guess one other thing, uh, and then I want to do like a little bit of a speed round, but uh, one other thing I want to ask you, you you talked about sort of defining success for yourself and uh, how that can actually change over time as well, even on a personal level. Uh, You've obviously gone from sort of a a day and night, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 a year um, entrepreneur to, you know, having a little bit more balance, and, and obviously having a family and, and being a father is important, I assume, and everything like this. How have you sort of navigated that shift in balance over time?
1: Um, being rich helped. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I was when I when I was still grinding it out, um, trying to make my, you know money. Um, well, let me rephrase that. When I was still grinding it out, you know, on a mission to retire, um, I had no balance. I went seven years without a v- vacation with micro solutions. My buddies were going on trips. I wasn't. Um, and that was just a price I was willing to pay happily. Once I, I became financially successful, all the, that stress that I used to have, you know, my credit cards being cut up, the bills, you know, not being paid the bill collectors, the lights being turned off, all the stuff that happened when you're broke. I didn't have those stresses anymore. So I didn't, you know, and now at this point, people basically kiss my ass whether I like it or not. And I get to set my own schedule, which allows me to put my family first.
0: Yeah. Well, I I certainly appreciate you squeezing me in there on on the busy busy schedule. Uh, I want to get to this speed round. Just some, uh, you know, some light questions curious to hear your responses. Uh, we'll start. Is that cool? Yeah, of course. All right. Let's start off. Favorite hip hop album.
1: Um, DMX, um, and I forget the name of the album, but it's got the song fame and, you know, bring comes to mind cause DMX being in tough shape right now, yeah. but the song fame was like my huge motivating song.
0: That's great. F- favorite stupid movie.
1: Um, ap- um, Oh, American pie.
0: Nice. Uh, sports team. You wish you could buy.
1: No more. I'm done with that. Just the Mavs.
0: Okay. Uh, inexpensive product that you love.
1: Oh, that's a great question um Alyssa's Healthy Cookies they're they're one of my companies but I eat them for breakfast every morning
0: classic I'll, I'll skip favorite dessert then uh favorite place you ever visited
1: um Montreal I love Montreal
0: good book that you read recently
1: oh my goodness um I gotta think through I just fired through so many of them um what's on my desk here entrepreneur to millionaire
0: okay uh last one one of the best restaurants you've ever been to
1: um white castles
0: White castle wow okay that that is the white My castle best. everyone knows and loves right yeah I love white castles wow I, okay I did not expect that but uh, the good news is yeah,
1: I, I hate fancy restaurants hate fancy restaurants
0: really hate them okay. I'm not
1: a foodie at all
0: oh, okay uh well white castle is certainly efficient uh, but anyway I, I want to uh I want to wrap up here. I know we're coming up on time. Uh, A couple things I want to sort of uh, leave teasers or or really one thing I want to leave a teaser for the audience. Uh, We spoke briefly before the call, but I think we are going to uh, NFT this podcast. We didn't talk a ton about it, but you're super into it. You've got this website, Lazy.com. Can you tell us a little bit about Lazy and why you started that?
1: Sure. Lazy.com started three weeks ago today, I think it is. And effectively, it's a personal gallery for NFTs. And so you just go to Lazy, you pick a name, it assigns you a URL, lazy.com slash mcuban as an example, lazy.com slash Jake podcast. And you connect a wallet and it shows all the NFTs in that wallet. And then you can use it as a URL in your social media profile. You know, they typically allow you just one link in there. And so this is a way to, you know, so if you look at my um, Instagram or LinkedIn or or whatever, um, Twitter, it says lazy.com slash mcuban. So you can see all my um, NFTs. And you can also share them on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So that if you want to um, show off, if you want to sell them, um, if you want to see what different people are into, that's the way to do it. We're not a social media network, um, it's just a way for individuals to present their NFTs the way they want
0: to. Awesome. Well, uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. It's been an awesome conversation, and I, uh, I look forward to you know keeping in touch in the future.
1: Absolutely, Jake. I appreciate it. Great job. It was a lot of fun.